You on here? Yeah, we are. Okay. Welcome. Welcome. Please open your Bibles. If you have one, turn your phone on or however you intend to get there to James chapter 1. You'll find the, uh, the notes of this morning's message in the bulletin. And if you don't have a Bible, on the back side of the notes is this morning's text. And this morning, we'll continue from last week dealing with the issue of trials. Uh, it showed up in our singing this morning, and it is still the focus of James' instruction. While you turn there, I will uh, remind you some of what we already have seen and learned. James is writing to a dispersed, persecuted, mostly poor Jewish church. We know that after the stoning of Stephen, it led to more persecution, and these Christians scattered quickly, most of them probably leaving most of their possessions. They, They left where they grew up. They left their homes. They are dispersed among the Greek world. And we know even in the Greek world, there's persecutions that are sporadic as well. We know from reading the letter, they're mostly poor. James talks about the rich dragging them into courts, the rich robbing them and not paying them for their work. They're suffering. They're under trial. And so James, after his opening greeting, addresses the central issue, trials, and how true faith responds in trial, how true faith acts in trial, and he gets to the point in verse 2 where he gives them a simple yet very difficult command. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. And we saw the inclusiveness, all joy, whenever, all the time, all sorts of trials. You and I cannot say, well, I know normally I'm supposed to count it joy, but you see my situation is unique. Nope. This is all the time, all joy for all sorts of trials. And he gives us reasons. Because trials produce, in faith that's tested, endurance, steadfastness. We get that, that when you lift weights, your muscles get stronger. When your faith is tested and you respond in joy, respond in obedience, your faith gets stronger. Trials test faith, because faith and actions are united. What we do Evidence is what we believe. And so James tells us to count it joy, a source of great joy, because we know the testing of our faith produces endurance. And then he goes on to give a further reason. Endurance isn't the only virtue or value through the tested faith. Rather, endurance itself becomes a fertile seedbed of all other issues of character and maturity. Endurance will have its complete work, making us mature and complete, lacking nothing. But it still doesn't make it any less hard, right? Well, as James has been so far through this letter, ending a sentence with one word, picking it up at the beginning of the next sentence, he's done that about three or four times now, so he does so here. You see at the end of verse 4, lacking nothing, verse 5, but if any of you lacks. And so this morning, there's good news, there's help. James is going to write to us what to do while we're not yet mature, while we haven't reached that state of completion, while we still need help, while it's still hard to count it all joy, what do we do? In fact, this text this morning, verses 5 through 8, there's really two messages. Um, some of you are groaning, but we'll try to fit the two messages into one sermon slot. We'll see, though. Um, there's a message of encouragement and hope. There's a message of comfort. There are great promises of God lavishly given out. And in the second half of our text, there's a pretty stern warning. 
pretty dire warning. So I'm going to try in the first half of the message to, to hit those bright, encouraging notes. I also intend to hit the warnings in the second half of the message. And so for some of you, this will be a message of encouragement. For some, a message of conviction. For some of you, perhaps even both. Let's begin by reading James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. We'll have a word of prayer and we'll begin. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Lord God, I pray that you would encourage our faith, that you would cause us to cry out to you for help, for wisdom regularly. I pray that you would cause us to grow confident in your good intention towards us in your generous and giving heart that we would be confident that our father loves us and he gives us the things that are needful i also pray lord that if there is in any of us a doubting double-minded heart you would expose that as well we might deal with it that we might repent and turn to you lord sing and sting wound and heal with your word in jesus name we ask this amen So this morning's text, we're going to look at in three points. We're going to look at the command, and there's a condition that's given, and then caution urged. The command, the condition, and caution. The command is straightforward in verse 5. We have another imperative verb. Now, this is a good command. If the command in verse 2 seemed hard, this is a command that hopefully you'll find easy. You'll find encouraging. Here it is. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. So James assumes a problem. He assumes a need, something lacking. He ended, he ended, good night. He ended, verse 4, by by speaking of the fruit of endurance grown to seed is a state of maturity and completion where you're lacking nothing. And perhaps James anticipates someone raising their hand saying, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. What about me? And that's where we get to with verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, if you're not at that level of maturity yet, if the command in verse 2 seems really hard, there's help and there's good news. There's good news. The problem, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, the way James writes this assumes it to be the case. And so here's your blank. He's now considering a period of time before steadfastness has had its full effect. I think what he's considering now is the the contingency, the what-if scenario of what if you haven't yet reached that state where endurance has borne its full and complete fruit. What then? And this is what he's speaking to. In that situation, what are you to do? What are you to do if there's still more maturing that needs to happen, more growth that needs to happen? You're not as stable as you'd like to be. You're not as strong as you hope to be. Well, here's a command Let him ask God. Um, And he understands that what we need then is wisdom. It's interesting to consider. If any of you lacks wisdom, well, know what I lack, you might be tempted to think, is strength, endurance, grit, determination. Or honestly, what I really lack is comfort. What I really would like is the the trial to get smaller and be taken away from me. 
And so James' logic then assumes that in trial, that is testing our faith, what you and I need is wisdom. Now the question then is, what does he mean by that? Wisdom is a dominant theme in James. Remember, if you remember my suggested outline or thesis statement for James, is that true faith works itself out in obedience under trial, relying on the wisdom of God. And here's the first mention of wisdom. And it's important for us to ask what he means by wisdom, because just today as we could back in the first century, you might misunderstand. In the scripture alone, we get insights into differing perspectives. They're in the Hellenized Greek world. We know the Greeks did a lot to do with wisdom. You think of Plato, Socrates. And we even see some of the indication of those things in Scripture itself. Paul referring to Epicureanism, Stoicism. We know in 1 Corinthians 1, the church valued wise words, rhetoric, rhetorical ability, powerful speech. We know in Acts chapter um, 17, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So what does James mean by wisdom? Is it novel teaching? Is it forceful speaking? Is it the Epicurean or Stoic philosophies? Or even the Gnosticism that creeps into the first century church with secret knowledge? Turn to, turn to chapter 3. I think James gives us a clear indication of what he means by wisdom. And we need to set our understanding by this. James chapter 3, verse 13, through the end of the chapter. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. James says, oh, you've got some other wisdom. Let me tell you its source. For wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, and now we get the description, God's wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's James's understanding of wisdom. It's not knowing a bunch of complex things. It's being peaceable, being open to reason, being gentle, being full of mercy and good fruits. You see, that's a slightly different, or rather significantly different view of what wisdom is. Your blanks here, I think if you want to put it really simply, wisdom is the ability to think and act rightly in life. And probably most specifically when it's hard. In trial. Wisdom is the ability to respond rightly with your environment, factoring in everything that's there, including God. And so wisdom then is understanding that there's more than just this life, There's a life after this. There's a living God. There are promises he has given. And living in light of that, which yields meekness, gentleness, patience, self-control, peacemaking. In fact, this understanding of wisdom fits perfectly in the context. In chapter 1, he's going to consider wrong ways to respond to trials, some of which include getting angry, some of which include blaming God. And don't do that. You You need God's wisdom from above if you're going to respond rightly. So the logic then is this. If while you and I are in trial, 
and our endurance is not yet completed its work in us, we need help. What we need help is God's wisdom, so we might think and act rightly in this trial. To put it sort of brass tacks, it's like this. God, I need your help, I need your wisdom, so that I can view this trial rightly and respond rightly. Help me do that. that that's, that's what I think is fundamentally in view here. Wisdom being the ability to think and act rightly in life. So that's what you're lacking. The prescription then is let him ask God. It's a command to ask for something, which is why I think it's a little easier. It's a command to ask for something. But this presupposes our awareness of our problems. Your blank, your first blank under prescription is to recognize your need of wisdom. See, and oftentimes in trials, there's more than one trial at work. And what James wants us to see is that the trial itself is a trial. Here's what I mean. Imagine you break your leg. It's going to keep you out of work. It's going to involve a certain amount of pain and suffering. It's going to involve a certain amount of humbling of yourself as you need to either use crutches or use a wheelchair. You'll need people's help getting in and out of cars, potentially. There's all of those trials. There's numerous trials. But even before all of that, if we understand James, there's the trial of how are you going to think about this? Are you going to grumble about it? Get mad about it? Get depressed about it? Or will you respond recognizing I'm going to learn how to trust God. I'm going to learn how to glory in my weakness. I'm going to learn how to lean on and depend on others. God's going to grow my faith in this. And so, just with something like a broken leg, you can be so fixated on, okay, I'm going to be out of work. Do I have enough sick time to cover for this? How am I going to get from here to there? How am I going to get my responsibilities? You can be so focused on the things the trial will ultimately and eventually involve. Don't miss the fact that right out of the gate, the most important thing, we saw this last week, how will I regard and interpret this trial? Because it doesn't come naturally to us to rejoice, to count it a cause for joy. Grumbling comes far too easily to us. And the reason I point this out is you're not going to ask for wisdom if you're not aware that you need it. You're not going to ask for God's help if you don't realize you're failing right out of the gate in how you interpret and how you respond and how you think about and how you regard your trials. So you've got to get last week's message fixed in your mind. It is of utmost importance how I think about, talk about, view my trials. It's not a small thing. It's not just for super Christians. This is James's opening exhortation. It's really important. Because how I think about it is going to set up how I respond, how I talk about it. And then, because that's hard, ask for help. Ask for God's help. Ask for his wisdom. You're going to see it's free. It's unlimited. He gives to all. It's good news, but you've got to be aware that you need the help. So recognize your need of wisdom. Don't miss the trial of the trial itself. Okay? Next, what are you specifically to do? You're to pray to the giving God. And we sometimes have those posters with all the different names of God, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Sabaoth. The way James sets this up, you could interpret this as a title. Let him ask of the giving God. And I I like that. It's a way of emphasizing how fundamental giving is to God's nature. He's a giver. He gives of himself. He gives grace. He's like a fountain that's always overflowing with good things. In fact, just jump ahead a little further into James where he 
highlights this point. Look at verse 16 and 17 in chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's just an overflowing fountain of good things and good gifts. So you can think in one sense, I, I worship the giving God. That's the way James phrases it here. And then he wants to emphasize it even further. Look at the qualifiers here. Who gives generously to all without reproach. Now the word translated generously in the ESV is sort of a Hebrew idiom. He gives singly, singly-eyed, or simply you could translate it. It's, it's a word used in Luke to refer to the eye. When Jesus in uh, Luke 11.34 says the eye is the lamp of the body, if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. If your eye is simple, undivided, that's, that's the idea. And so it gets this idea of sincerity, but sincerity because God is not complex in his motives towards giving. It's not as though part of him is generous, but there's a part of him that's stingy. It's not as though he has ulterior plans. He is through and through generous. He gives, you might say, wholeheartedly. Another way of thinking about it. What you see is what you get. Here is a generous, giving God. There's nothing more. That's the simplicity of his giving nature. God gives sincerely to all. I think it's sort of the idea. Sincerely, without duplicity or guile. I stress this because it's going to help inform and contrast with doubting and double-mindedness coming up. So get this. God gives with a singularness of intent. God gives completely sincerely with no hidden part of him begrudging the gift. And notice he gives to all. Not just his favorites, not just to some. He gives to all sincerely and without reproach. And maybe your parents, when you grew up, or maybe you as a parent, sometimes will scold, rebuke your children when they ask for help. And sometimes your children may deserve it. If I've tried showing my son how I want him to clean his room, the 15th time when he comes back and says, now how am I supposed to do that again? It may be appropriate to say, look, but you're not paying attention. What's wrong? God doesn't do that in his gifts. God doesn't say to you, you need more wisdom? What would you do with the wisdom I gave you last week? No, no, this is good news because we are stupid people and we don't always learn quickly. And so I find myself going back again and again and again and again to God asking for help. I'm going to the giving God who sincerely and wholeheartedly gives and doesn't reproach. He doesn't begrudge. There is a condition in this text, but the condition's not how faithful were you last week, the week before that, the week before that. That's not the condition. God doesn't reproach. If you are able to recognize that you need help and you ask for it, he just he gives. Gladly, sincerely, wholeheartedly. He doesn't rub your face and what you do the last time I gave you something that he doesn't do that. He does not reproach. This, this is the good news. So if we can adopt the goal, if we can receive the command of counting it all joy, and understand James means this. Jesus, when he told the disciples to jump for joy when they're persecuted, meant it. Paul means it. The Bible means it. And it's really important. It's not a small thing. And that's 
kind of intimidating because that's a pretty high standard. The good news is your Heavenly Father freely, gladly promises to give you the wisdom you need to do that without rubbing your face in it, without begrudging, without any stinginess. He, he, he gives sincerely and gladly, and he gives to all. This is, this is the way wisdom is pictured. Keep your thumb here and turn to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, in one sense, kind of sets out the theme of the book itself. Two women are pictured, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, and both of them make their sales pitch to the would-be student. In Proverbs chapter 9, I just want to look at Lady Wisdom. Hold on. There we go. You can see Lady Folly starting in verses 13 to 18, but I just want to look at Lady Wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. This is a rich, lavish feast. And she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever's simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread, drink of my wine. I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. It's a free invitation to all who will come. That's the picture of wisdom in the Old Testament. And James is saying, God, the source of wisdom, has that heart. If you need help in thinking rightly, rejoicing in your trials, if you need his wisdom to know how to respond, I don't know how to, this is so difficult, I don't know what to do, ask. And notice the promise. It will be given him. Absolute certain promise of grace. An absolute promise. You can depend on this promise. If you are in a difficult place, and you don't know how to respond rightly. You don't know how on earth you can have the right attitude. James says, ask. Ask a father who is giving by nature, who doesn't begrudge, and it will be given. That, that's the good news. That's the good news. That's the free and abundant grace that we have. And of course, James is just echoing things Jesus has said. Think of Matthew 21, 21 to 22. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only be able to do what has been done to the fig tree, but you can even say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea. It will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Or Jesus teaching his disciples to pray in Luke. I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here's this abundant promise attached to this command. So, so get it. We, we need to understand that how we think about, how we regard, how we interpret our trials is of huge importance. That God commands us to regard them in addition to a cause for suffering as a cause for joy, knowing God's doing good through them. But then God says, and if you need help doing that, ask. 
I give to all generously. I give to all liberally. That's, that's the good news. There's your command. Now we move to the condition. There is, in fact, one condition. And it's not the condition we might think. It's not the condition of, if you've shared your faith at least twice last week, you can ask God for wisdom. Or, if you were faithful with the wisdom he gave you last time, you can ask God for wisdom. That's not. Or if you've memorized more than three verses in the last two weeks, you can, that's not the condition. There is a condition, but it's nothing like that. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. And here we need to pause and be careful, because so often I think we have wrong views of what the Bible means by faith. And faith is another one of the major themes in James' book. Isn't it interesting that some of the major themes show right up here? Wisdom, faith, trials. So what does he mean by ask in faith? Now let me tell you what I think he doesn't mean. And I think the context makes this clear. He does not mean intensity of belief. I think a lot of times when we see statements about great faith or small faith, we're thinking of intensity. And then we try to work ourselves up to just really psych ourselves on, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. I don't, I don't think that's what he's talking about here at all. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. In chapter 2, turn over to chapter 2. Let's take a little look when James talks about faith a little further. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from my works. I will show you my faith by my works. James's intention and focus on faith is its connection to action. You see faith by what it does. You see faith by what it does. And I think that understanding of faith is informed in the context here. So let me give you some of your blanks here. Let him ask in faith. Means believing first in God's goodness and generosity. Faith is is trusting the giver. God's made these promises. If you're going to ask, you have to believe the promise. That I think makes sense. Hebrews chapter eleven says something similar. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You need to come to God seeking reward. You need to believe God's a rewarder. He's a giver. But, more to the point even, I think, is you must ask with a sincere and unified heart. A sincere and unified heart. I said before, I don't think it's intensity of faith he has in view. Rather, unity or singleness. Why do I say that? Well, Because of the way he describes doubting. The doubter, and we'll see this in a few minutes, is the man divided within himself. He's double-minded. He vacillates. He's unstable. In contrast is God who is single-eyed, who is sincere. Or, as one commentator puts it, Doug Moo, our asking must coincide with the way in which God gives. He gives with singleness of intent. We must ask with singleness of intent also. What I mean by that is this. Are we asking God for the wisdom we need in order to obey him? If we are, we're coming with singleness of intent. Father, give me what I need to please you. I want to please you. I don't have the wisdom I need to do it. That's the single purpose. Here be not coming that way. 
Father, give me the wisdom because I might obey you. But if we're honest, we can do that at times. Let's see what God says. Maybe we'll do that. God, give me some help. Let's see what he does. Then I'll decide how I'm going to respond. That, I think, is precisely what's pictured by doubting or double-minded. You're divided within. You don't have a sincere and unified heart. Psalm 86.11, praise God, unite my heart to fear your name. The idea being, I don't want there to be parts of my heart that don't fear God. Unite my heart so it's all one flavor, one color, one note, one fear of God. Asking in faith is not having a chunk or portion that worships things or the world. We're coming unified with a single intent, a single purpose. That's faith. Are you willing to act on what he says? Because, of course, James says you show your faith by what you do. Or let me put it really simply as I can. Asking in faith means asking, God, if you give me the grace, if you give me the wisdom, I intend to act on it. I think that in James's terms would be the simplest way of saying it, because you show what you believe by what you do. So are you asking God for help in the trial, wisdom in the trial, with the intent and desire to act on it? Then you're asking in faith. If you're doing something else, I think you fall into the other line with no doubting. Blanks here being without inner division and contention. The word used for doubting here pictures a divide. If you turn over to chapter 2, it's the same word he uses to describe the divisions made in the church. Chapter 2, verse uh, 4 He talks about the potential of them um, letting a rich person sit in a good seat and a poor person sit in a bad seat. And he says, have you not made distinctions? There's the word translated as doubting in verse 6. Because the idea is a division that generates conflict. And so the picture of doubting is internal division and the assumed conflict that results from it. Which is in direct contrast to God's singleness of focus in giving. That's that's the idea of doubting. So it's not, I believe, but sometimes I have doubts. Rather, it's I intend to serve and obey God versus someone who's like, well, maybe I will. We'll see. Let me me illustrate this point by stealing an example from D.A. Carson. I won't attempt to say it um, in his accent. But I think it's, uh, you can count, yes, you can say amen. But I think it's a great example about faith and how faith works, what faith means. Imagine the first Passover. It's the night before the very first Passover in Goshen. Two Israelites are talking together, two fathers, heads of households. And the first one says to the other, it's kind of a frightening night, isn't it? The angel of death going through the land. The threat of the firstborn son being killed? This is kind of a heavy-duty night. To which his friend says, Well, you heard what God said through his prophet Moses to to sacrifice the paschal lamb to put the blood on the doorpost. You've done that, haven't you? The first says, Well, yeah, of course. I'm not stupid. But still, I love my little Johnny. It's not a really good Israelite name, but we'll call him Johnny. Don't we want to do if anything happened to him? And no, I trust God, but this is this has been kind of freaky the last week with the things and the blood and the darkness and the gnats and the frogs. It's been I, I, I trust God's prophet. I'm I'm I don't know if I'll sleep a wink tonight. To which his friend says, Bring it on. God's promises are sure. I trust him. 
Well, they get done and they go home and they go to bed that night. And whose whose son dies? Neither, right? Because both of them acted upon what God said. They believed God enough to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and God made it clear it's the blood of the lamb that protects. It's not the intensity of their confidence that saves them. Both of them had faith. How do we know they both had faith? Because they both heard what God's prophet Moses said, and they both acted on it. Now, one of them did it with great confidence, slept like a baby. The other one was nervous. They both had faith. Both of their sons would live. So James talking about asking in faith is not working yourself up to some hyper level of confidence. Rather, it's uniformity and singleness of intent. Am I really coming before God sincerely as his child intending to do his will and doing that self-introspection? Now that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning considering that type of doubting and unbelief. But let me turn to chapter 4. We'll end our time probably looking at chapter 4, but try to further explain this. Because in chapter 4, James considers prayers that don't get answered. And he tells us why, and it's the only other place he uses the term double-minded in the book. But look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You, you don't come as a servant of God. You don't come as his child. You come worshiping other things, loving other things. God, give me, give me, give me the stuff I want. God says, no. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to you. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So yes, I I think this is consistent with James' use of the term. Asking in faith is fundamentally looking at the sincerity rather than the duplicity, the singleness of intent and purpose. He'll explain that further now with the caution, with the caution. And at this point, he stops talking about wisdom. He, He broadens his scope. Notice that. Now we're just talking about the doubting man. And we're going to learn he's unstable in all his ways. Wisdom discussion is now over. We're now considering the peril and the caution for the double-minded, doubting man. Okay? So let's look at this. We first get a picture. We first get a picture. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is one of James's vivid word pictures. Now, I know there aren't many natural, or any natural lakes in Iowa, but I grew up in an area of New Hampshire called the Lakes Region. We had over 100 lakes in about 100 square miles, some of them small. So for at least my childhood years, pictures of whitecaps on lakes being driven by wind is something I can draw to mind readily. And I'm sure you've seen it. And in the Jewish thinking in particular, water is a a force of chaos, of fear, of disorder. I mean, God begins a creative act by separating the waters. He separates the Red Sea and walks through them. If you read through the Psalms, waters regularly tumult, deeps are frightening. 
uncontrollable, chaotic things, what is even more chaotic than the surface of a lake or a sea under a strong wind? That's a picture he draws upon here. The one who doubts, which is why I wanted to find this. It's not having those moments of doubt where you're lying in bed and you're like, oh, man, your faith wanes a little bit. But rather inward turmoil, that inward division, that, that trying to serve two masters might be another way of saying it. That's what was pictured here. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Let me read to you what uh, Edmund Hebert says about this word picture. When the wind blows from one direction, the billowing waves move with it. When the wind blows from the opposite direction, they move again with that. The billows fanned by the wind also rise and fall as they move. They're unstable. They move around. They go wherever the wind blows them. Here's your blank. The waves are a picture of something entirely acted upon from without. They're entirely subject to whatever the whims of the wind are. They, they simply are passive. And in their movement even, they're not orderly. Um, Hebert here, again, the emphasis of this passage falls on the tossing, not only moving before the impulse of the wind, but also doing so not in regular lines. They're tossing, they're rising, they're falling peaks. This combination of lateral and vertical movement gives a vivid picture of four-dimensional instability. Waves, I wrote here, are a vivid picture of four-dimensional instability. They're not, they're not even orderly in their movement. But the One wave's crashing and falling, and others rising up. And the picture is of the whole billowing surface of the water. That is what someone who is inwardly divided is like. It's not a good picture. It's not something you want to be. It's something you want to not be. And if that is what's going on, you want to recognize and change. The vivid picture of the waves. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And then he's warned of presumption. That person. Notice how James is even distancing himself. Not that brother. That person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. See, there's a danger here of self-flattery. You're blank here. Recognize your duplicity. Do not flatter yourself. This person flatters himself. He says, oh, I'll receive. I'll receive. I, I, know I'm, I know I'm trying to serve two masters, but it's okay. Turning your Bible to Deuteronomy 29. This, is this, this warning that lukewarm... Two master-serving people will not inherit a blessing. It's not unique to the New Testament. Deuteronomy 29, the end of the book, gives this warning strongly. And it's it's a warning I think we perennially need to hear. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. I'll pause. I'm pretty confident this is what Hebrews 12.15 is referencing, not bitterness of personal conflicts, but this bitter root. So it's beware. Then he's going to describe what this bitterness 
and this poison root is in verse 19. One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So get this. Moses is laying out the covenant again, the Deuteronomos, a second law. It's not a second law. It's a repetition of the law. The people entered into a covenant with God at Sinai, and now, as they're about to go into the land and leadership's about to pass to Joshua, it's reiterated, laid out again, and he's saying, beware, lest one of you hears this covenant and thinks to himself, I'll receive the blessings even though I don't really intend on obeying, keeping the covenant. Or if I could put it in modern Christian vernacular, it's okay, God will forgive me. I know it's wrong, it's okay, God will forgive me. That's, I think, how we say it today. Now, if you're talking about past sin, amen, God will forgive you. If you're planning on sinning, and then just planning on God forgiving you, this, I think, is much closer to where you're at. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him. But rather, the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. You don't want to be this guy. You don't want to hear the words of the covenant, profess loyalty to them, and plan on doing something else. You don't want to be double-minded. You don't want to be like a wave driven and tossed by the wind. Waves are a vivid picture of four-dimensional instability. You don't want to presume. James is anticipating that this person is telling themselves they'll be okay. They'll get by. They'll skate by. It's okay. Recognize your duplicity. Do not flatter yourself. God is opposed to the double-minded. We saw that in James chapter 4. We saw that in James chapter 4. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what do you do if this is who you are? If you recognize you've been trying to serve two masters? Well, I think you take the counsel James gives in chapter 4. To turn over there briefly. There's still good news for you if you'll repent, if you'll recognize this and confess. It's not that the double-minded man is in a hopeless state. He's in a hopeless state while he remains, or she remains, double-minded. But God gives more grace, verse 6. Therefore, it said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. If you think the second half of this passage this morning describes you more than the first half, there's your prescription. There's still grace available. He gives more grace, but it's a different set of instructions than here. Ask. There's still grace, there's still hope. James addresses this more directly in chapter 4. And finally, we look at the peril. The peril. And here's again why I'm saying James is no longer talking just about wisdom, because he's broadening it out in every sense, right? He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, as far as we can tell, James coins the term double-minded. 
The Greek is literally two-souled, twice-souled. Now, maybe his attempt to take a Hebrew idiom from Psalm 12 and put it into Greek. In Psalm 12, we read, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. It could be that James is taking the idea of double-hearted, because in the Hebrew mind, your heart is your entire immaterial being, and he creates double-souled. That, that could be what's going on here. But it's a vivid picture of someone with a complete and total inward divide. They're literally at war with themselves. They're of two minds. They're trying to serve two masters. And James says, this person, this double-minded man, is unstable, not in some, but all his ways. The picture of the wave on the sea describes every aspect of his life. He is inwardly divided by his own desires. He is inwardly divided by his own desires. Why do I say desires? Go back to James 4, as I think these passages help interpret each other. Verse 3, you ask and you do not receive. How can that be? God gives generously. He doesn't reproach. He gives to all. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. We come to God not sincerely as God worshipers, but we come to God worshiping other things, asking him for the stuff we want. We're inwardly divided. And James warns, this person's not going to receive anything from the Lord, which goes beyond wisdom. Nothing. And he's unstable in all his ways. Um, to turn to Ezekiel 14. I want to look at one more passage here to vividly picture this. Because really, and I do this a lot in pastoral counseling. If you want to play games with God, you are far better off to be honest about it, have done with pretending, and go your own way. Now, far better still than that is to repent and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But I think the harshest judgment, the sharpest words of our Lord are to people playing religious games. The Pharisees, Laodicea, the lukewarm church that Jesus vomits out of his mouth. Or Ezekiel 14. I use this passage a lot in counseling because... You, you want to promise people there is grace, there is hope, there is help if you're sincerely coming to God for help. But often we just want the trial to go away. We're in a pinch, things are difficult, we call on God, things get better, and we go do our own thing. And it becomes clear we didn't worship God. God was the genie who got us out of the problem we were in. In, in Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel, you remember, is in the land of Babylon in the outskirts and Jerusalem hasn't fallen yet. Um, Nebuchadnezzar deports the Israelites in three waves. And some people come to Ezekiel to hear a word from the Lord. Probably, how is Jerusalem doing? They're hoping Jerusalem is going to, going to survive. They've got some of their own false prophets who are saying Jerusalem will remain. But they come to, they come to Ezekiel. And from a certain perspective, that looks good. They're coming to the right source. They're coming to God's prophet. And they're sitting respectfully, right? Look at verse 1. Then certain elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? 
Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, yet comes to the prophet. You see how it's worse? You'd be far better if you're going to do that just to stay home. Yet comes to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent. And turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourns in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And I'll set my face against that man, and I'll make him a byword and a sign, and cut him off from the midst of the people, and you shall know and I am the Lord. James is warning exactly of that in chapter 4, where we come to God to expend things on our passions. This is that picture of inward divide, of being double-minded, being double-souled, being split, trying to achieve two ends. You think of Elijah's counsel to the men of his day. Remember Mount, um, no, the prophets of Baal. Here we go. Elijah with the prophets of Baal. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And all the people did not answer him a word. This is one of the messages through Scripture. If, if you will turn to God as weak as you are, as failing as you are, as faithless as you've been, and with a sincere heart say, Lord, Father, now I want to please you. I want to do what's right. Give me the strength. Give me the wisdom. James says he'll do it. He'll do it without reservation. He'll do it gladly. He'll do it abundantly. But if you're playing games, you're going to receive nothing. And you ought to expect to receive Nothing. You're like a wave of the sea, unstable in all your ways. And even for such a one as that, chapter 4 says, there is more grace. And I'm hoping and trusting that we are those who have faith, who have trusted in Christ. And when that storm comes, we have an anchor for the soul. We're going to sing our closing song now, Christ the sure and steady anchor. Um, this wonderful promise is here. And there are terrible warnings. We would do well to hear them both. Please stand.